We were looking at Exodus 34 last time, as we were saying, and the Lord reminded Moses of certain things, such as the feasts and then the Sabbath day and so on. And we noted how Moses' skin had a radiance about it because he was in the presence of Almighty God. Exodus 35. And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. This has been reiterated by the Lord, re-emphasized multiple times already since they came out of Egypt to get it deep into their thinking, into their conscience collectively as a people who are different. And we noted how also the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant to Israel. When we see the emphasis placed on the Sabbath so much, we can know that there's something for Christians here too. And we've heard uh, much of the applications in days past regarding the Sabbath day. We don't have a Sabbath day as a law from the Lord God, but we do have the principle of dedicating one day out of the week. And we have Sunday as the first day of the week, the resurrection day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called to give that day to glorify God exclusively and also to rest, which is a cessation from work. But we also saw that the Sabbath denotes wholeness. It's more than just rest. It's the restoration. More than just restoration of the body and the physical powers or mental powers, but it's the restoration of the soul, the spirit. God is wanting to restore the soul or the spirit back to himself in a primary devotion to God. It's a recognition that God, after all, runs our lives. He is the reason for our rest. He's the purpose for our existence. He's our everything, our all in all. God brings that Sabbath rest to view in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 4, stating that salvation through Jesus Christ is the rest for the believer. It's no longer a day which was symbolic and a type of the eternal Sabbath rest that begins on earth by what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. And he says there remains a rest in Hebrews 4 verse 6. And some must enter. And those to whom it was first preached. Sabbath is a picture of salvation. It was preached that through faith they can inherit the promised land. And a covenant relationship with God. That will go from earth to heaven. That was God's intent for Israel every one of the Israelites. 
that word that was preached to them is preached to us. What is it? Not the full gospel. That's not what was heard by them, but the salvation by faith. They had a picture of salvation. And it's all by faith. The Old Testament believers lived by faith. And faith was supposed to be the motivating influence for the works. But when the faith, the living faith was removed and the works remained, God said it's useless. In the book of James it says that the body without the spirit is dead. There's no use. So faith without works is dead. But also we see in Ephesians that it is faith that must precede the works. The works come through faith. All this to say that the salvation in the Old Testament, although not fully revealed, the relationship, the covenant was by faith. And so it is in the New Testament. That has not changed. That's why Hebrews 4 says, that's what was preached to them. That they must believe by repentance, enter into that rest. They had rest in measure. But we have the full rest. The Apostle Paul says, they couldn't enter into everything because they had to wait for us. Who? The Gentiles. Those under the new covenant. So together we'd be made perfect. It's an amazingly beautiful picture that God weaves together of the plan of salvation for not the, just the Jew, but for the whole world. God had intended from the beginning that the whole world should be saved and it should happen by faith. By faith. So the Sabbath rest is emphasized very strongly by God. And we are called to pay attention to these things because it has application to our lives. The question is, am I setting aside one day out of the week to symbolize my total rest in God for eternity? Am I giving the first fruits? That was part of the feast during the time of Passover. Feast of first fruits. Am I giving the best? God encourages us this morning to give our utmost, our best. To check in our lives to see whether we will do work on the Sabbath. Meaning, whether we would have a divided allegiance. It's symbolic. It's a typology. It's a principle that if I dedicate something to God as a holy day, as is written in Exodus 35.2, the seventh day shall be a holy day. If believers celebrate the Lord's resurrection and we gather together all over the world, like the Israelites, the 12 tribes, they were a holy people who gathered together for a holy convocation, a holy meeting, a holy Shabbat, a rest. Everybody in Israel knew 
This is a covenant factor with the living God. You didn't do this. You didn't observe this. You're cut off from the people. God won't recognize you. No one will recognize you because you have gotten yourself out of God's rest. The question for us is, when we dedicate a day, when we dedicate something, are we keeping that as holy unto the Lord, meaning separated exclusively for the Lord? This is why in our church fellowship, we teach and we emphasize the importance of giving the day to the Lord and having that to be the tone for the week. God is first. God is my all in all. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Notice, not simply not recognizing the people, but death was the penalty for violation of the Sabbath rest. This is something important. We noted in Nehemiah's day, they were violating it. They were violating it when God said that don't gather manna on the Sabbath day. You'll have enough on the sixth for both the sixth and seventh day. What did they do? Some of them went out looking for it. It's an application that we look at our lives and we think, what kind of things can Satan bring as a advantage to my human mind and rational, rational mind that I can do both things, that I can juggle my devotion to God and still get the other stuff too. In short, that's to have other gods, to divide loyalty and allegiance. God won't put up with that. We heard last evening in our family Bible study that the Lord says you have to lose yourself for my sake. It's written in Matthew and Luke and in Mark. It says in the gospel's sake. Lose your life or consider it expendable for the kingdom of God, for the glory of the king. And if you try to save it in the process, you'll end up losing it in the in the ultimate sense. All of the commandments, including the Sabbath commandment, is a opportunity to honor the Lord, safeguard our salvation. That person, they could have been circumcised, they could have observed Passover, they could have observed the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of of boots. They could have made the pilgrimage, the males, to Jerusalem three times in the year as it was mandatory. And if they violated the Sabbath, they would be put to death. It shows how God is very precise in His commandments and how he demands total loyalty. Now, we have grace upon grace. It's written in the Gospel of John, for the law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness, 
we don't see believers struck down and cut off. We need to remember always that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He hasn't changed in His mercy, not one bit. He hasn't changed in His love, not one bit. But these Israelites, once again we must remember, they saw things that no one ever saw before or since. None of us certainly haven't seen what they saw. They were held accountable. Furthermore, God was coming to dwell in them. God would walk with people. He would appear to people like Abram and Abraham, who became Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They would see God's visitation. But now he said, I want to not just visit you. I want to live right there in the midst of you. Certainly the penalty should be stricter. Praise be to the Lord. God fulfilled the requirements of the law as far as the feasts and the ceremonial duties. We don't have to be so careful in watching ourselves in that way, ceremonially. But we do have to be holy. And we have to observe every one of His moral commandments. We have to be careful. We see the easy distinction if we have eyes to read the way the Spirit shows us, which is a great safeguard against carelessness and folly, thinking that Jesus fulfilled the law, grace and truth is here, so I can flagrantly go on violating any commandment I choose and I can always run to the cross, not so. Although we have the Advocate, we have to be careful because the same Lord who prescribed this in Exodus 35 says in Hebrews 10 if they despised the word of God the law of God the covenant of God and under a few witnesses were cut off from the people it brings us out. If you remember Hebrew people, Christian church, how the people were treated under the law. They died without mercy. If they rejected Moses' law on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Notice how after Jesus came and died and rose again from the dead, after the Gospels, we have this explanation. Remember what happened under Moses' law? Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. We're in Hebrews 10, verse 29, an insult to the Spirit of grace. That means God still takes it very, very seriously when someone disobeys him. This is speaking of a pattern of disobedience. Praise God that we're able to go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness when we sin against Him and He's willing to forgive provided we repent. But if we make it a habit of treating God's grace cheap, 
then there'll be a fearful judgment. The Sabbath is a rest. It's a type of the rest of God's commandments that we need to be careful to follow Him. No wonder the fear of God is lacking in today's churches. Because they look at the law, they read Exodus, they think, nice piece of history. Too bad it doesn't apply to me because I'm free under the new covenant. I'm not under the law. We are under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We're under the law of love. And the first law of love is to love the Lord your God with everything that's within you. Which means fearing him and doing his will. We're under a law. We're under Christ's law. The law of the Spirit and the Spirit of love. Because of that, the book of Hebrews says how much more carefully we ought to treat the commandments of God. Oh, if only this were preached and understood all across the churches. Just a few sentences to let people know that grace is not cheap and you can't toy with the grace of God because you will die. You see? It's not slipping here and there, but a understanding that I can do these things because I'm under grace. We will be cut off from the people of God too if we persist in that. But if the word is preached and we come to God and we say, Lord, I've been living an immoral life. I've been living like a drunkard. I've been living violent, Lord. The sin of Cain is in my heart. Sins of murder, anger, wrath, jealousy, greed like Gehazi. These are serious offenses. Oh God, I've I've been in love with myself too much. To come to the Lord as Moses came to the tent of meeting, the Lord, I have no sacrifice. I have no sacrifice to speak for myself. And there's nothing you'll accept because only the blood of your son can cleanse me. To understand the cost of the blood of the Son of God and to say, Lord, my life is a Sabbath rest. You first, finances, God first. Family, God first. Vocation, God first. Conversations, God first. Recreation, God first. Medical condition, health, God first. Asa was built up to be a strong king of Judah. God delivered him from a great foreign host that came to slaughter him in Judah. God brought a tremendous victory. And after some time, he started to become confident in himself. His eyes began to look at his kingdom and he thought that he was in control. Then when a lesser army came against him, he immediately hired enemies. And that lesser army was, in fact, Judah's sister, Israel in the north. And Asa flew immediately, never consulted God to seek help from the Syrians. It became a snare to him. And the pattern 
apparently continued to the point when he was diseased in his feet with a very sore disease. Scripture records that he looked for doctors instead of looking to the Lord. And then when the prophet spoke to rebuke him, he mistreated the prophet. Then he oppressed some of the people. So many things happened to a good man. These are written for our admonition that we have to be very careful how we walk because the demons can come all of a sudden give this uh, picture of prosperity and make us go after money and the quote-unquote finer things of life. All of a sudden, the immoral spirits can come knocking at the door and if we're not guarded, we can begin to wander in our mind and imagination and become defiled. We can be doing well and all of a sudden we can feel human sympathy for relatives and friends and compromise the truth of God and get ourselves in a dangerous position. We have to remember people like King Asa. We have to remember people like Gehazi. We have to remember that the Lord says you don't have to end up like that at all. You can be like Caleb and Joshua. We can be like Samuel and Daniel and Joseph. We can be like Anna and Simeon. We can be like these people, like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said, all the righteousness I got from the law is useless over here. Because Jesus' blood cleanses me, but he was a man who observed the holy commandments of God, which kept his spirit pure. Paul was not contending and saying, I can't do it. I'll be a missionary God, anything you want, but I can't keep from lusting. Paul was not a man who said, well, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. I know if I lust today, I can go tomorrow and confess to the Lord, and I can do it all over again next week and become a cycle of my life. But I go down history as the greatest apostle. It doesn't work that way. The people who are called to serve God, are called to be holy. And no wonder the apostle said, watch yourselves. He said, uh, act like men. In other words, be people of valor. Do the right thing. We heard last evening about the importance of courage, this boldness. Stand up for the truth. Obey God. Have faith. Do the right thing. And the Lord Jesus said, watch and pray. Imagine that. He didn't say, my blood will do it all for you. His blood washes away our sin. We can't presume and say, I'm under the umbrella of Christ. And the Lord took it very seriously here in Exodus 35. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Why? They would use the fire to cook, of course. In their homes, they should not do that. 
It took faith to trust God. When the Spirit of God says something to us, we will always have this friction, opposition from within, influenced by Satan. When God says to do something, we begin to calculate with the devil helping us as to what about the gain and the loss, the liabilities versus the assets and what's going to be the flow over here? Can I afford to do this? Oh, God, help us. If God said it, there's no questions. We go ahead and do it. They have to trust God that they can do okay on the Sabbath without kindling any fire. Just as he provided manna. Enough for the Sabbath on the sixth day. There's some Christians who have a hard time giving up television. They think I can't live without it. But then when they do, they begin to wonder, how did I ever live with it? Such a monster. Others say, I can't live without going out on Friday night. Do you know any Christians like that? Caught up in the culture of the day. I'll go crazy if I don't go out on Friday night or Saturday night and go out to dinner. Is it an absolute must? Will a person lose their mind if they don't do it? And then they see the Lord saying, well, you can save money. You don't have to do this unless he wants you to do it on certain occasions. But it's not something that's a staple in your lifestyle. Then we find out that person or that family steps back from that and uses that time in a more constructive way, spiritually and financially, relationally. And they think, how do we ever live like that? And so on with the fashions of this world, with the mentality of this world. A Sabbath rest. I'm free to do what? Glorify the Lord. When? The whole week, beginning with Sunday, is a definite pronouncement, just as a tithe and offering. Now, having said that, we get to the offerings for the tabernacle. These offerings that the people brought willingly out of what they got from Egypt when they left, not only did they get silver and gold and earrings, jewelry, they also got linen. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring. It is an offering. It is an offering to the Lord. What were they to bring, these Israelites? They're in the wilderness. Where did they get the gold, silver, and bronze? Blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair. Construction of the temple. I should say the tabernacle, the portable temple. Ram skins dyed red. They didn't necessarily get this from Egypt. But obviously they had access to it. Badger skins and acacia wood. All 
oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Could God have rained down gold on a certain part, part of the wilderness where they dwelt? Could he have led Moses to go and dig in a certain location and found all the silver and bronze for the needs of the tabernacle? Could he not have created blue and purple and scarlet fabric, fine linen? Could he not have slaughtered many goats and brought the hair to a central location? Notice how God, from the beginning invites partnership from us to see whether we will trust him and love him. The offering was a willing offering. Now, when they give the gold bar and hand it over to Moses, they're going to be short that gold bar, obviously. When they give the silver and bronze, these metals away, they're going to have to put a minus sign deduction in their account. When they give the blue, purple, scarlet, this rich, exquisite threads, they're going to have to put a liability check mark or X mark on their sheet there. The Lord says, give it willingly. We mentioned recently that these people had to have faith. They had to believe that God is worth at least this much. You see? Abel, first of all, valued the Almighty God enough to give him the best. Not just to look for a reward. Because of love. These people were given a chance to demonstrate love for God. You see the whole crux of the matter? It's not simply who can bring and fund this project. Come on, you have a share. We're going to put your name on this plaque. We're going to have you identified as a part of the president's $1,000 club or million-dollar club, whatever. We're going to recognize you the willingness was to come from love for God. And as we know, God never, ever can be outgiven. They also knew that whatever loss I seem to have now, this great God who gave us this stuff in the first place, who persuaded the Egyptians to give up their gold and silver? earrings and all such things that the Israelites were told to borrow on that night when they left in haste. If you read that particular incident, you see that it was God that gave them favor. God Almighty influenced the Egyptians to give up willingly. There was a transfer that came from the Egyptians into the Israelites. And all they're doing now is saying, Lord, you gave it to us. We're giving not even all of it. A portion. No wonder David said, Lord, all that I have is yours to begin with. Who am I that I should come and do this for God? Have you ever thought that way? 
Imagine if God said to you, I want you to give up your house because I want to use it. Oh God, not my house. Where am I going to live? Can you see some people talking to the pastor or the prophet? How do you expect me to live? This is ridiculous. For other people, their sneakers may be their joy in the whole world because of a certain brand name and how they take care of it. For others, it may be their vehicle. Others, anything but this, God. No wonder, in the earlier part of this morning, the emphasis was on careful obedience to check ourselves and see whether we are holding anything back or whether we have gone backward in some way where it's hard for us to yield everything to God. What a wonderful way to live, to have everything on the altar continually and say, Lord, whatever you want to use. You know what the Apostle Paul said? A man who was well known in the circle, who had access to wealth, not only did he say, I count everything loss, for the sake or for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, he also said, having food and clothing, let's be content. Can we be content? Godliness with contentment. Is great game. Have you ever found yourself, even when you multiply gadgets and different assets, there seems to be no increase in peace and often you see a decrease because we always seem to think that if I have this, it will give me happiness. And we find that it doesn't and our priorities were misplaced. When we say, Lord, you are my happiness. And if I should lose this, that, or the other thing, my happiness, my joy is intact, is still intact. Because it all depended upon my love relationship with you. It depends on that. These people, for them to be willing to bring these assets and offer it to the Lord. Notice, it wasn't for the funding of the project, the building project. Primarily it was the offering to the Lord who used it, who gave them an opportunity to come and give. So that the people on the whole can be blessed with what? After all, this is a place for the dwelling of God. God was going to come and live in this place and be among the people. Amazing. When David and Solomon were commissioned to build the temple, it said that the whole heavens cannot even contain God. And yet God made himself available and he condescended Cummins' glory to be there. And these people were funding God's house. They were showing their love for God in providing this to honor the living God. What do you do for them? Often we ask in the evening calls, has God done anything for you lately? 
although it's grieving truly to hear a long silence a few people volunteer to say what God has done for them lately the truth is he's done a lot for us always these people knew the ones who were willing they came and they provided all these materials onyx stones verse 9 and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate all who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the lord has commanded the tabernacle its tent its covering its clasps its boards its pillars its bars its pillars and its sockets even the pins the clasps the tatches every part of the building every part of it you can say to the down to the tiniest nail was under the watchful eye of almighty god because this was after the pattern of his tabernacle in heaven had to be exactly the way god said every piece that was used became holy it was a normal piece of gold jewelry just like any other it was the same substance as any other gold then composition the linen was just like any other beautiful clothing but the moment they came and laid it at the altar willingly offering to god the glory of god separated it unto god forever the table and its poles the mercy seat the ark and its poles the veil for the covering do you know other than the high priest who would go into the most holy place once a year only the men who made it escaped death anyone else who touched the ark who ventured into the tabernacle first of all and among the priests if any priest would venture to enter in to the most holy place if he was not the sole high priest for the whole year who can go in yom kippur on the day of atonement he would die instantly the men who made the ark were set apart by god to be able to touch these things materials constructed once it was constructed and they left it they couldn't touch it again they would die the holiness of god and the sacredness of the dedication of anything we give to god translating to the sacredness of our bodies we should have nothing on our bodies that would defy god's holiness we talk often about cleaning house in a figurative sense and in a literal sense in a literal sense but we also speak of the very body because the tabernacle god dwells in today is your body and my body we're born again 
Isn't it amazing? The Bible says in a, a supernaturally mysterious way, we are members of his body, Jesus' body, of his flesh, of his bones. That means like the tabernacle, every screw, every socket, every pillar, every bar, every board, every clasp, like our joints in our bodies, every digit, every rib, every organ belongs to the living God. Our eyes are devoted to God. Do you know it's possible for a man or woman who's a believer to have no thought of sinning with the eye? No thought whatsoever. And there's nothing particularly sinful either in front of them, but they go to a degree of holiness that they don't even want to take a chance. And so they deliberately avoid certain things that are not necessarily sinful. Neither are they afraid that they're going to fall, but they're just careful. And so they cloud out from their vision the things that they used to look at as believers, which were not necessarily sinful, but they're not altogether expedient. You see? We can grow in this holiness where our awareness is heightened, spiritually speaking that I don't even want to go near anything that would distract me from my holy calling and the way I should keep myself. These things we speak are spiritually discerned, truly. And it takes one who desires to be completely holy to understand and receive. Not legalism. It's out of our own volition. That Lord, I'm going to keep myself far removed from anything that even comes remotely close to becoming some kind of distraction that can lead to some kind of delusion, that can lead to some kind of destruction. What a high calling. What a high standard. What a wonderful opportunity to offer ourselves, like the physical tabernacle, every part of my body belongs to the living God. I'm not going to put anything on my body. No t-shirt, no sir. No t-shirt with anything that may dishonor God. You see? We can wear clothing that may have some writing on it. may not necessarily be scripture. But it can still be honoring to God. How? Maybe simply the manufacturer's ID on that clothing. I wouldn't necessarily wear something that has a big um, emblem of the manufacturer because I'm not representing the manufacturer. But as it goes, they may have their name tag somewhere. As long as it's not opposing God's truth and His holiness, something fairly neutral, there's nothing wrong with that. I can wear that clothing honoring the Lord, thanking Him for the clothing that is good quality and durable and I'm thankful that I have food and raiment, food and clothing, with godliness I'm content. A step further might be to particularly wear clothing when feasible, that have scripture verses or something alluding to God's glory. 
more emphatically. Why not? Don't people like to wear uh, T-shirts that have Champion or Nike, whatever it is? Some of the things are good, some of the things are bad. They stand for goddesses and all these Greek things that are mythology and demonic. And same thing with clothing. We had some clothing from India somebody gave for the children. All kind of bizarre words. They think it's cool. They don't know what it is. It's much like some of the music. Sometimes the Christian music in uh, some years past I've heard growing up in the United States. Instantly I recognize it as a tune and melody and format from the 50s and 60s and maybe 70s. Secular music, but they adapted the tune because they thought it was cool. They didn't know any better. They don't mean any harm. But you see, we recognize that and we don't want to identify with that. Similarly, the clothing with some statements that they thought were cool. But they're not honoring to the Lord. So we get rid of them. How much do we value money and artifacts and assets and not the glory and honor of God? You do that test yourself as a grandparent, as a parent, as a son or daughter, as a child of God. Am I honoring God with what I put on my body? Anything that goes in this body. Because you know why? This body is dedicated to God. It's willingly offered. I'm crucified with Christ. I do live, but not me. It's Christ that lives in me. And they that are crucified with Christ have, or they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. What an honor. What an honor to be able to give this mortal body in service for the living God. Oh, what a high calling. What a spotlight it, it casts on who we really are in Christ. How everything we do should reflect the glory of God. These things are brought, including the elements necessary for the compounding or the composition of the apothecary, the holy anointing oil and the incense the sweet incense and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle question is the screen at the door of the tabernacle it's just at the entrance is that holy? absolutely the whole place is holy as we mentioned even to the pin even to a nail even to a clasp everything was holy you can say it was on fire with God's glory Notice, when we give our tithes and offerings, when we give our bodies, when we give our service to God, it becomes holy. And the Greek is hagiasmos, or variation of that. It's just separated to God. Nobody else touches it. Hallelujah. To think that God would take something from us and transform it? Hallelujah. And how greedy and grumbling many Christians are, thinking, oh, well, I have to write this check out. I have to do this and I have to spend three hours I have to do this for God. I'm tired. That's why God says, whoever has a willing heart, don't come grumpy. I don't want it. Isn't that right of God? Not to put each other down as we preach this. It's God's truth. It's a evaluation of ourselves to say, how am I serving God? First of all, am I serving God? Or am I 
freeloading. Am I jumping on into the van and just going for the rise and I don't have to do anything about it? And then if I am serving God, am I doing it with a willing heart? Am I understanding that my service becomes sacred? Hallelujah. You can say it's on fire. The moment we bring it to the altar, God's fire comes down. It becomes something different. Hallelujah. And wonder of wonders, God credits that to our account, even though it all came from Him. How beautiful, loving God is. The altar of burnt offering, verse 16 of Exodus 35. With its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, and the lever and its base. The hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs, just the pegs, are they holy? Absolutely. The pegs of the court and their cords. The garments of ministry, for ministering in the holy place. You know, there are people who have robes that they wear when they preach. It's not a law. And the robe may look uh, exquisite. Rich embroidery really stands up. There's nothing wrong with that. If it's done with the right heart. That when I minister in this way, distinction hear this carefully that's between that person and God there's no law calling for it under the new covenant there's no law prohibiting it it's wrong to judge someone saying well he's dressed all fancy and he's got his robe or she's got her robe ministerial clergy robe and collar whatever they call it and uh, we don't have to do that we're not under the law it just seems so stuffy and stiff and like they're up there and we're down here and there's a... God will judge us if we judge wrongly. At the same time, there are people who have those garments and they think there's something above the rest of the people intrinsically, intrinsically and essentially. In other words, they lord it over God's people. They become pharisaical. On the other hand, there are people who don't wear those robes. They come in their everyday clothing or uh, special occasion clothing, but it's not anything specific to ministry just something neat and tidy. They want to come with their best. Not to be seen to get glory for themselves secretly like Gehazi. Being leprous in heart and praising God on the outside. No, God have mercy. But they really say, I'm dressing for the glory of God. And especially if they minister. And they may be deemed to be casual. They may be reprimanded by those who feel the other. You wear a special robe over your clothing. You're ministering. Well, that's that tradition. Individual aspect of that person's understanding of ministry and ministering. It's not to be enforced or imposed upon this person who believes that 
I'm coming with the best I have, and I don't feel the need for any special clothing like that, some robe. God sees this heart and is acceptable with him. The point is that every minister should have the garment of righteousness on this spirit man. Minus that, whether dressing casually or sophisticated, it's all an offense and stench to God. Jesus said this, judge not by appearance, but judge righteous judgment. We need to be careful. Even when other people speak, we should never agree with anyone when they judge wrongly or they prejudge. We need to stop and think and rely upon God's Spirit to give us wisdom to step back and listen and observe and think according to what God has revealed. And if we're not sure, to keep quiet and pray until we're certain what God's say is on the matter. But these garments represented the priest's internal state. They need to be holy on the inside in their hearts. The garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred. And whose spirit was willing. God specifically has written the inner workings of a human being when God calls people to serve Him. My heart really moved for God out of love for God. Service is only service to God if it comes out of love for God. Otherwise, it's nothing but a show. There will be no reward. God won't accept it. These people were stirred and they were willing. They were moved. The moment they heard Moses say, you know what God said? Every one of you out there, a couple of million people, whoever is willing, come bring an offering to the Lord for this tabernacle. Some of the people heard, they weren't willing. But a lot of them immediately were stirred. Oh, God, it's going to use me. God wants something from me. He's going to use me. coming. It got to the point where, we'll read later on, they had so much, it ended up being too much. Really showed, such as in day, day the people's hearts were stirred. They got the point. Caught the spirit. And they brought the Lord's offering, verse 21 of Exodus 35, for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, also known as the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, notice the emphasis again, this third time, as many as had a willing heart and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. Do you know how many believers today will weigh every ounce? And they look up the 
global value for the ounce of gold and see what fraction I can really afford to give. Just too much. I have a figure in mind. I think I'll give God this much. And anything past that, mm-mm, not going to do it. Sorry. Who are they doing it to? The living God? By whose power they're breathing? The Spirit of God will stir us to present everything to Him and that which He wants at certain times. If we fail, we show our lack of love for God, lack of faith. They brought willingly these precious things, this jewelry. They could have kept it for generations, right? They could have said, well, this, this one right here is really a beauty. I'm going to keep this for my Oh, up to generations going to be in our family. Because this is top dollar stuff from Egypt. I'm not going to get this again. I have no plans, no sir, going back to Egypt to get anything like this. This is a keeper. I'm keeping this. They came. They came and gave so much as we mentioned a few moments ago, it was too much. They had all that they needed for the tabernacle. All jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, red skins of rams, and badger skins brought them. Some people have written that the badger skins may have been aquatic animals. Some actually believe dolphins or some other sea creature. But they had access to it. Obviously it was useful, this leather. But they gave it willingly. See, they didn't count the cost of what they would be missing. But they rather counted the cost of not giving. What is that? How do you figure a cost attached to not giving what you have? It's the blessing of God. To make God's heart happy. He can collect every single ram, badger, sea animal, goat, every material, fraction of a second, no time at all. Amass it up to heaven. But he's looking for who are his loyal, loving children. This tabernacle curtain, you had the finely twined linen, and you had the goat's hair, and you had the rams and badger leather, And the colors of the linen. You had a white base and blue, purple, and scarlet. Put in a certain order. That's actually found in scripture. Blue, purple, scarlet, red, and then the fine linen, white. You had the king, Jesus, Coming out of heaven, blue stands for celestial or heaven. Purple denotes kingship. 
Out of heaven came the king, blue, purple, to shed his blood scarlet, make us white, clean. Beautiful picture that some have noted in reading this. Pattern, the type, the foreshadow of the Messiah centuries later. Of heaven comes down the king to shed his blood on the cross, purify his people. Verse 24, everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. In every one room was found acacia wood, this aromatic wood, certainly strong wood. They gave it up. They could have used that to build their own houses. Whenever they're going to settle, they could have carried it around and done other things with it with it, but they gave it willingly. They they love to give, you see? God loves a cheerful giver. The New Testament records. He loves a cheerful giver. They came excitedly. And let me say this for the glory of God. To provoke you to love and good works, as the scripture says. That scripture has repeated this before. We heard of a missionary somewhere in India, I think in the north. She went through much hardship and she had a medical procedure that was required immediately. It was life-threatening. And after a hard night's work and then I had school at that time also, tremendous um, tiredness and just expenditure of energy and having to drive back and forth, having full-time work and then full-time school and I believe student teaching at that time when doing the graduate work about 14 years ago or so, 13 years ago. And uh, getting a call from my wife saying that this is the situation and we got news that this person, we don't know them, I don't know them, they need help immediately. And the uh, Lord spoke to Pastor Kerbal and then when she told me, the Lord gave me a clearance immediately. I took the entire paycheck, having the little ones at that time, entire paycheck and sent it by Western Union. People think how foolish. You don't do that. You have a family. It took faith. But God is my witness. Not only did Pastor Kerber have tremendous joy, but as I took the paycheck and I sent it, I felt completely free and happy. Can't explain it. The Lord never ever can be outgiven. Anytime we've done that, He's blessed us more than we can calculate. That's the truth. 
God doesn't call everyone to get on a boat and be a missionary somewhere on the other side of the world. God doesn't call everyone to take every paycheck and do that. It doesn't work that way. Certain times the Spirit of God will see where our hearts are. And we yield ourselves to Him and do that which is foolish in the sight of man, in the sight of the world. We do it for His glory and for the good of His people. The Lord will give much, much more in return. Verse 25, all the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun. They worked. They worked. It wasn't simply, notice, it wasn't simply an offering of material goods to the service. How many women will be industrious and diligent like that? It's for the Lord. I'm going to take every special care and do it skillfully. They've never seen a tabernacle. But the faith in the word that God spoke to Moses stirred their spirits up. We've got to do this for the glory of God. Too many Christians today are out to save their own backs. Rather than live for God's glory and they want to strike a deal and a bargain with God. God, I'll take this and you take that and you watch this and I'll watch that. These women were not like that. They willingly, as the men did, did what they had to do for the glory of God. And all the women, what's time now, whose hearts stirred with wisdom, spun yarn of goat's hair. They were moved to do the work with excellence, precisely. Unlike Ananias and Sapphira, Unlike Cain, they brought their best. Like Abel, like Barnabas. The rulers brought onyx stones. They got involved too. And the stones to be set in the ephod in the breastplate. What a beautiful picture of the body of Christ here in type. All contributed to the work of God. In the book of Acts, we see the church come together and became a community true communal living where they brought all the assets together and distributed among themselves what anyone had need for. The practicality of that in our day may not be feasible according to God for certain reasons. However, the spirit of giving, the spirit of love behind the giving and self-sacrifice. We heard about that last evening. Self-sacrifice. Not counting every piece of candy that I'm going to share with my childhood buddy and make sure I have a few left for me that I really love and give him the rest. That's not so good. How many adults do that today? That too with the Lord. And that too with the body of Christ. This selfishness is a monster that keeps rearing its ugly head in churches. What we want to do is not judge other people, make sure we're not part of that. Only 
we can be honest with God and say, God, am I like this? Am I a selfish person? Oh, no, I'm not like that. Let's not excuse ourselves too quickly. Let's let God speak to us and expose everything, every motive. Then we can repent. But if the condition is not known thoroughly, why would anyone want to repent? It's the sick that need a physician, the Lord said. The one who feels he's healthy, the one who sees or thinks he can see and he's blind can't be helped. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. And these women did their service as well as their contribution by material. The oil and all these things came. Everything needed came. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel. Imagine this. As I read this a few days ago, imagine if during our service, the Spirit of God comes in prophecy and some member in the church right there during the service is called out, not by the pastor, but the Spirit of God calls that person by name. Can you imagine what that is like? Two, know during the service, God has called you out of everybody by name. Come forward. It's the work God has entrusted you with and is giving you the supernatural wisdom that you need to do it. What a powerful thing for Bezalel or Bethalel the son of Uri, the son of Her. There's no confusion of another Bezalel. This one, the son of Uri. Can you imagine God calling you by name, saying, son or daughter of so-and-so. And the Spirit of God names your father, or your, your, your father, and then your grandfather. In what clan you're from. Specifically, you. I want you. Come. What would have happened if Bethlehem would have said, No, I'm sorry, Moses. You got the wrong guy. Do you know how many believers quench the Spirit of God out of their lives by expressing a false humility when there's really laziness, unwillingness, and total despising of the job that God gave them to do. And they think they're talking to a pastor. We're speaking of those who are genuinely called of God, not just any pastor, any church. But to refuse that, to refuse God, who's calling you by name. Bethsalel, as we said before, means under the protection, the covering the shadow of God. Later on, we'd see, as we read before, that Ahaliab was called to be his helper. These two supervisors and captains of the whole service for the tabernacle building, that is, the building of it, construction. Ahaliab seems to be insignificant. It just means his name, the father, and his father's tent. However, when you put Bethsalel and Ahaliab, together see that 
this is the father's house we're under his shadow exactly what the tabernacle stood for this is the father didn't God say Israel is my firstborn my son go out of Egypt I'll be a father to you I'm coming to live with you you're under my shadow tabernacle God chose these two men specifically what has God called you to do do you love God enough to run and say oh father you chose me I remember playing stickball as a child variation of baseballs some of you may know all of you who grew up here most likely know or a game of football just little children elementary junior high age or baseball or soccer and they have to choose sides and they have a method of doing it various methods and when you get chosen to be on the team that you believe is going to win how excited you are or if a certain person that you admire they choose you how you'd be clapping for joy I got chosen by that one what about the living God what did God call you to do I don't know but I can't wait I think I'll be the next Bethsalel I'm going to supervise this and that well, maybe he called you to make one of those little sockets and you're at the bottom of the totem pole in man's estimation but I'm not even among the hundred chief people not even a thousand I'm somewhere here in the corner making a little socket or a couple of tatches I'm responsible for the pins oh boy crumbling how many people get to have any part of a piece of work from heaven translate this into our own lives and say God anything you call me for is a glorious thing oh my God thank you Lord never will I compare myself with other people as far as the jobs that you give Lord and you call me by name to do this I'm going to give it everything I've got what will God do he'll be honored he'll be well pleased and he will multiply our talents hallelujah Look what God gave this man of the tribe of Judah. As we said, this one was from the tribe of Judah, this Bethlehem. Ahaliab was from the tribe of Dan. Polar opposites, if you will, in the formation of the tribal assemblies around the tabernacle and in the procession. God just took two people, representatives. And no one can say, oh, he's taking favors from this tribe and that tribe and he forgot us he took uh, the first and last so to speak encompassed everyone and in this man God put this divine wisdom and he has filled them with the spirit of God we heard last evening in brief Pastor Bashir different types of anointing different types of anointing the anointing that came to Bethsalel and Ahaliab was that anointing necessary for the construction of the tabernacle it's not the same as the anointing for other things God calls for the anointing to prophesy to heal 
the anointing for priests and kings different types the same spirit and he has filled them with the spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding in knowledge with all manner of workmanship to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze in cutting jewels for setting how uh, meticulous this job would be how skilled they need to be to cut jewelry especially in those days the lack of technology but they had the spirit of God and so it is with church so it is with any service for God and during the worship service God's not looking at how many people and how fancy the building and whether we have this group and that group and deacons on this side and deaconesses here and a choir over there and oh this is my way of church this is where I grew up well we need to know it didn't produce any life did it life comes spirit of God is present that's all we're concerned about he'll work out the rest the way he wants in his time as you saw in the previous chapters we need God's presence to go with us that's all we need if we have his presence we have everything because the king is there hallelujah in carving wood very specific jobs how could one man be able to do all this stuff Holy Spirit and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship God just downloaded everything into their man and he joyfully leapt like a deer to the task with a holy fear of God and he gets to touch the ark at one time when he was building it whoever had a part in that who would have ever thought that things that God would give you access to when you're faithful in the least he'll know you're faithful you'll be faithful in much he'll give more and he has put in his heart the ability to teach also you see not everyone can teach even if they're skilled in something he had the ability to do that too in him in Ahaliab the son of Ahismach of the tribe of Dan he has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue purple and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver those who do every work and who and those who design artistic works God has given something for everyone to do perhaps he's spoken to you and said you need to pray a little more perhaps he's spoken to you and said you need to you need to pray with tears real tears with a real burden when you pray perhaps he's spoken to you and said well God has called for this help in the church first of all we come to church not to give our gifts as far as service we come to worship the Lord sometimes church and organizations they have a way of giving responsibilities to people and that way they make the people feel like they're worth something they have a part in this and ownership in this so they'll show up that's not God's method at all we could easily do that 
as an organizational act. This is an organism, not just an organization. It's a living body of believers. The body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit must direct everything that needs to be done. And people must come to see God and worship God. The service is secondary. But if we come to worship God and see God, we can't help but feel that tremendous desire because we love Him to do something for Him. And that service will be exclusively for Him. Not what other people think necessarily and what recognition I get. In that case, we lose our reward right away. To be sincere, unlike the world, unlike what's popular today, so much carnality in churches and Christian organizations, adults acting like little children, competing, getting upset if they don't get called on or somebody else goes first. God have mercy. All the apostles would say, are you not carnal? So much strife within you. You can't wait for other people. What is this impulsivity? It's not from Christ. It's from the devil. Stop it. You need to be humble. You need to be gracious. Our words, our tone, our expression. There's some people who, when they're given grace by someone else in the body of Christ, when they're politely given preference, they don't even bother to say thank you. They don't even acknowledge as if they stay right. Where's the tenderness? Where's the love? Where's the honor? Where's the thankfulness? So there's a Christian culture. Yes, we come from a world of dog eats dog, as they say, a mean world. The culture of Christianity is culture of true agape love. And it's true, we, we learn. Not everybody has that background or that sensibility. But we learn this is a different culture. It's not a white culture, black culture, purple culture, Indian culture, or Spanish culture, or Chinese culture. Culture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the organism operates. Is love. And we learn. When we learn to do good, but we pick and choose and selectively turn on and turn off the proper manners and the love, the courtesy, and we become guilty before God. You see, if we're ignorant, it's one thing. But if we become willingly ignorant and we decide who I'll treat nicely and who I'll give a little cold kind of look or not say thank you and get them back for this, we're in big trouble with God. But if every member would be loving, kind, patient, preferring others before themselves, it would be heaven on earth. And the Spirit of God can work mightily. We heard recently about Achan in someone's prayer how because of the sin, the whole people of God were held back from victory. And that's how it is in the body of Christ. If a person allows carnality or sensuality, not necessarily meaning immorality, but just a carnal kind of selfishness, 
then the army gets held back because Satan wins. But if everyone would watch ourselves, come together in true love, in true preferring others before ourselves and learning that and saying, you better learn this. Speak to ourselves and treat that flesh, crucify that and say, this is not the way you behave. Go to God at night and say, Lord, I've, I've blown it. I acted like a little child. I don't want to be this way, Lord. I want to be able to come and offer you a willing heart. I want to offer you hands that don't know any strife anymore. Lord, I want to offer you with joy my thanksgiving and in love for your people. Lord, I want to give you my body, my spirit, my soul. I want to give you my substance. I want to give you my service. Everything sacred. The glory of God will fall upon our service, upon our bodies. The glory of God will fill His temple. So we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you speaking the things we need to hear that we as a people may be well pleasing to the living God. Everything we've heard, Lord, we'll put into practice for the glory of God. That in wisdom, we'll be led by the Spirit of God to do the exact things you want us to do, Lord, each one of us. And to prepare ourselves for greater service. To be faithful in what you've given us. And thank you, Lord, that some are reaping the benefits of being faithful in the least. As you're opening doors for them, Lord, gloriously, as only you can. And others are learning to be truly self-sacrificial and faithful. Learning not to live a complaining life. A bitter and the transition is happening. Hallelujah. We all become perfect and mature in Christ. And thank you, Father, that you so wonderfully open up the opportunity to all of Israel to bring to the Lord willingly, to God, His house, the construction of God's house. And we've seen, Lord, what that exactly meant for each man, each woman. And how you gave anointing necessary to do the work for the people you called and the people who responded. They could have refused but they stepped in eternally grateful to you at least at that time you used them powerfully we thank you Lord that Bezalel and Haliab both had names to show your presence is coming down hallelujah you're preparing for that we saw, Lord, how the King came out of heaven to go to the cross, shed His blood to make us white, clean, pure, holy, white as snow. Thank you, Jesus, that people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation can come to you absolutely cleansed because you, Lord Jesus, have made us as a tabernacle, a temple for you individually and together where your glory dwells, your spirit. Thank you, Lord. 
Father, help us to be mindful of what we wear on our bodies, that everything should be glorifying to God, how we wear it, the reason for why we wear it. All honor, glory, and praise be to you. In Jesus' name, amen.